Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! So today, we're launching into a series, uh, first Sunday, called Resilient, uh, based on a book by John Eldridge of the same name, Resilient, Restoring Your Weary Soul in These Turbulent Times. So if you've not ever heard of this book, uh, I think it's a great book. Uh, I've read through this thing, and I did this series uh, a while back, the idea for this, because I just thought, man, one, my own soul needs this. And I'm looking around with people that I love and care about, and I'm thinking there's like a ton of people everywhere, man, that seem to need to hear what John has said in this book. And so if you're visiting today and we got some visitors, or if you're watching today, or if you're here, it's a good time to be here today because we're going to start this thing. Um, and I do believe, man, this can be really helpful for our souls. And here's why. Because if you've been paying attention the last few years, you've probably noticed that there's a high need for personal resilience. And you've probably also noticed that there's a lack of it, right? That we are struggling. Like, if you just, if you look at people around you in your own life, or you look online, you watch the news, it's, man, we are really, really struggling. Uh, one of the most popular songs right now is a song called Richmond North of Richmond, right? And this is a, an awfully painful lament. And it is resonating with a lot of people because there's a lot of people out there that are like, something is very, very wrong right now, and I don't know what to do about it. In the song, he talks about suicide, he talks about abuse, he talks about all these different things, um, and it's resonating. He was a nobody that went to the top of the billboard charts in the first time in history that's ever happened. I think that's a clue as to what our nation is actually going through. And so in the series, I'm hoping that we can see not only that there's something wrong, but there is actually hope to be found in the middle of it. Because a lot of us, what, here's what we want to do with trauma. And I want to make an argument this morning that we've all lived through trauma for the last few years. But what we do with trauma is we just want to get past it. I'm tired of talking about COVID. I'm tired of talking about the pandemic. I'm tired of thinking about that abuse or that hurt or that person or that season of my life. I just want it to be good again. But the problem with trauma is you can't just do that. You've got to deal with it. You've got to work through it. That's how trauma is. That's how God built us. We've got these souls, right, that we've got to care for. So I like to ask a question of people a lot, and I get all kinds of different responses to it. And here's the question. How is your soul doing today? So I'd love you to think about that. How is your soul doing today? A lot of us don't think about that, and it's hard to answer. Because in this response I'll get sometimes is just straight up. I don't even know how to answer. I don't even know what that means, that question. Right? And there's almost like anger that I asked it, right? And then there's uh, like the standard response, like, oh, I'm all set. I'm good. Right? And that, again, as we've talked about, that may or may not be true. Uh, and then there's the, I'll get sometimes, and we've probably all done this. It's like, oh, I'm good. Well, I mean, no, I'm not. I mean, I did just lose my job. But, I mean, other than that, though, I feel, well, no, there was that other thing. But I think, I think I'm good, you know? And so there's, like, this back and forth, because that's life, right? I mean, that is absolutely life. That's what we live in, kind of the back and forth sometimes. And then sometimes I'll get a response that's just really open and raw, and then they'll say, you know, I just, man, I, I'm a mess right now. My life's falling apart. Uh, and then it's okay, let's lift some life together. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this. And then there we are, right? We're off the races. But I want you to think really about your own soul and about where you are because if you dig just below the surface for a lot of people, regardless of how they answer that question, 
here's what you see in America today. And this whole six-week series, we're really going to be focusing on like what's happening in America, what's happening in our towns and in our people all over the place. And when you dig just below the surface of that answer, you're going to see anger. You're going to see people, a lot of people that are really on edge, really uncertain. You're going to see people that are angry and depressed. And, you're, and it's all right under the surface. And so violently sometimes to what's happening right now. Our culture is pushing us further and further over this edge, and we're searching for this relief, and we're not finding it. And in trauma response, this is something we know, right? We study trauma response. If you can't find that relief, rage is a very typical response in trauma response. And again, it's something that we're seeing because we've all had this shared trauma that we walked through in the last three years. Because I want you to consider just this short list of things that's happened to us in the last three years. So first and foremost, I would like you to consider people this morning. Right? So here's the thing about people. They matter. They matter. Regardless of their personal persuasion, politically or culturally, ethnically, whatever the thing is, people matter. Jesus Christ came for people. Right? He came to tell people about the good news. He came to die for people. That's the core essence of our faith as Christians. And so people have to matter. But here's what happened during COVID. For a very, in a very unique way in history, people were weaponized. People were weaponized because friends, very close friends, and family, very close family, begin to look at each other like weapons. Sorry, Grandpa, we can't bring the kids over because you might catch COVID. Or sorry, you can't come to our house. We will no longer hang out with you because you might give us COVID because I see you as a potential weapon that could harm my family. And think about what that does after years three years of thinking that way. A lot of Americans, a lot of people, especially early on. And then the other side of that was the political nature. Once it became politicized, now people are a political weapon, right? Because no, you can't come into my sphere because you don't believe in masks, or you don't believe in the vaccine, or you do believe in masks, or you do believe in the vaccine, or you do believe in all this. And we saw America implode because of that. We saw churches divide. We saw churches take politics more serious than they took Jesus, is what we saw happen in America. And American Christianity was decimated during the pandemic because we lost sight of where our true hope is. We lost sight of what was most important, and that's people, not politics. So that, imagine what that does to people, but imagine what that does to the, the church that represents Jesus who died for those people. Now, I also want you to think about this short list here. What happened to us in the last three years? We were stripped of normal life. We were isolated. We were living under the fear constantly of suffering and death, especially early on when nobody knew what was going on. We were bombarded with negative news almost daily, right? Anytime somebody caught a cold, it ended up as breaking news, right? I mean, it was everything had to be reported. Kept in a state of constant uncertainty about the future, that was fun, which led to no clear view of the end. And then we lost human connection with people behind the mask. Now, here's what I want you to hear me on this. What is very interesting about this is this right here, the things I just listed, are straight out of the playbook about how to break down a prisoner, both psychologically and physically. If you were to teach somebody, which our government does, which terrorists do, if you become a prisoner, how do you want to break a prisoner psychologically and physically? How would you do that? So put yourself in these shoes now. Don't think about this in light of COVID, but what if you were kidnapped? You'd be stripped of normal life. You'd be isolated. 
you'd be constantly under the fear of suffering and death. You'd be bombarded with negative news. You'd be kept in a state of constant flux, constant uncertainty about what was going to happen to you. Then there'd be no clear view of the end. And, as often happens when people are taken prisoner against their will, there's masks involved. That's a very unnerving, unsettling thing to not be able to see somebody's face. And it's a psychological tactic, it's psychological warfare to cover your face, because when you can only see somebody's eyes, that freaks you out. Right? It's unnerving. So what we went through during COVID is literally what you would use to break somebody psychologically. And many people just want to get over it. And yet we've got this scar in our souls. Like, this is what's happened to us. This is what we've all walked through. And so in this book, Resilient, Eldridge makes the, uh, the argument that we've got to deal with the trauma instead of just trying to move beyond it. Because trauma is a funny thing. If you just try to get beyond it, as you know, you're just piling the next trauma on the previous trauma. And then where does that go? How does that look for you? What's that do to your soul? And so all of these things, like this, this right here, there's a quote he has in his book from Dr. Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. It's a long name, but she has a good quote here. She says, as hard as the initial trauma is, it's the aftermath that destroys people. And so let's make that real. That's a very great point. If you have ever in your life had to plan a funeral for a very close family member or a very close friend, you know what I'm talking about. Not only are you dealing with the loss of that person, but now you've got all the details of trying to like put their life in, in, in a package and then bring it like you know just administratively, paperwork-wise, to an end. And then you've got to plan the funeral. You've got to do all the things, all that stuff. And it's like you're running at 100 miles an hour, and then the hard part comes. Then there's a silence that comes after the funeral when the people finally leave and you're just left with your thoughts. That could be anger. It could be fear. It could be regret a lot of times. And you're just kind of like swimming in those emotions. So it's the aftermath that destroys people. It's the aftermath when men and women come home from overseas and they're running at 10,000 RPMs the whole time that they're there. And then they come home and now they have to deal with the memories. They have to deal with the things that they've done. They have to deal with people saying, hey, what was it like over there? Did you kill anybody? Like, and that's why people are committing suicide. That's why people are turning to drugs, right? Our veterans are dying because it's the aftermath that destroys people. So this is very real stuff. And I don't want us to think, oh, yeah, it's church. We're just talking about Jesus and it's all like philosophical. It's not. It's not. It's what's happening to us as a nation. It's what's happening in homes. It's what's happening in your home and in your neighbor's homes. It's happening across our country and across the world. So what do we do? Why are governments trying to figure out how to do this? Why is England, why have they developed a ministry of loneliness? Governments have no idea what's going on. Artists singing songs about what the heck is happening in our world right now. What do we turn to? So how can we, if this is the Christian church and we're going to think about Jesus, how can we turn to him? What did he have to say? Because John Eldridge says that we live in no ordinary moment. I think it's chapter 2, that uh, this title, No Ordinary Moment, maybe chapter 1. And he just says, this is the unique time in history that we're experiencing together. And so how do we get through that? And it leads people to ask me, I've been asked this now several times, Pastor Kyle, is this the end? Are we in the end times now? And that's, depending on who's asking that question, you know, it's like I have to kind of feel that out, you know, because some people are like, man, is this the end? And they're like ready for war, you know, they're ready to brawl. And then some people are all like terrified. But I do want to say, well, let's think what Jesus said. So the Olivet Discourse, his own disciples had the same kinds of questions. Lord, how do we know when the end is going to come? What's it going to look like? 
So Jesus says, well, this is what it's going to look like. Let me tell you. And all the discourse is that the, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 24 and 25, and this, these are some of the things that he says. You can go and read this on your own, but this is the kind of stuff. Look at this. You're going to have false saviors, which we've got tons of those today. You're going to have wars and rumors of wars, which we have plenty of that, right? We have nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom. Again, plenty of that happening right now. What else do we have? You have famines and earthquakes. And these are just the beginnings of the labor pains. Now, people, again, they want to politicize and they want to get all hopped up about global climate change and global warming and all this stuff. Jesus said the earth is going to start going insane. You're going to have famines because there's going to be too much heat and too dry and not enough rain and food and crops. They're all going to die. Jesus said the earth itself is going to start acting crazy toward the end of time. So it's interesting to see that the earth itself is going a little crazy. Right? So there are things to think about. Right? Try not to politicize it. Try to say, well, Jesus said this stuff was going to happen. Right? What happens next? He said there's going to be the persecution and murderers uh, for following Jesus. Like, that's what's going to happen. It's a guarantee because, this next one, you're going to be hated because of my name, Jesus says. He said just simply because you follow me, there's going to be that level of persecution, which we certainly have globally. Right? And then it's going to lead, this kind of persecution is going to lead to the falling away of many. People are going to turn away from their faith, and then they're going to begin to betray and hate one another which is going to lead to other things that are in society that, we, again, we see today. Next, we have false prophecies. They're going to deceive many, right? Oh, look, this is what you need. This is what your soul craves. And then what we're seeing again big time today, lawlessness is just going to multiply. And because of that, the love of many is going to grow cold. People are going to get cynical. People are going to give up. People are going to grow hopeless. So, is the end coming, or does it just feel like it? I have no idea. I don't I have no idea, but certainly we can check a lot of these things off. But you can do that a lot in history, right? A lot you can do this in human history. But it's something worth noting. But in the middle, and here's what I want to know. I want you to know. Right in the middle, this is what Jesus says in verse twenty or chapter twenty-four, verse six. He says, "See that you are not alarmed, or what? A what? Like say it like you actually believe it. A what?" Right, because, yeah, you need to know these things, not when life is good, but when your life is going crazy, you have to be able to step back and say, okay, let's not freak out. When you're watching the news, when the economy is going crazy, and on and on and on and on, when you see all that list that we just talked about, when you see the, the terrorist tactics happening, you know, and what, what happened to us, it's like that's when you need to pause and say, all right, so do I actually want to lean into what Jesus Christ has offered or not? Or do I just want to keep doing more of the same than what our culture is doing? And they're freaking out. They're pretty hopeless. So do I want to keep going down that road or not? And I'm not offering easy solutions because your soul can take a beating. And a lot of people don't even realize that. That your soul can actually get beat up from what you walk through. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, you see a lot of this. And particularly, though, the psalm that we started with today, that Bernie led us down out of Psalm 42, verse 1, I want you to notice as I read this, and it will be up on the screen, but if you want, pull out your own Bible, look at Psalm 42, and I want you to notice the back and forth. Because this is the space where we live, this back and forth with God. So he says, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul, my nefesh is the Hebrew word there, so I long for you, God. Like, my soul is, is dying of thirst. Verse 2, I, or my soul, thirsts for God, the living God, right? I am weary. My soul is beat up. When can I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, Where's your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, I pour out my soul, that I manifest how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Man, I remember when it was good. And then there's like this rally. Why, my soul? Why, Nefesh, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. Very next words, though. He rallies, and this is life. Very next words in verse 6. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, right? I'm in exile. I'm, I'm thinking back about my homeland in the peaks of Hermon from Mount Nazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. I'm, I'm just consumed by you, which is that kind of good and bad in this moment. All your breakers, your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. It's like he's rallying again. But then he says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as they're crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, again, where's your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you so in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. Like, that right there is a model of just what to do when your soul is taking a beating. Just leaning in deeply to God. That's what the beauty of the Psalms is. And even Jesus faced this kind of, like, this dejection of soul. Look what he says. Here he is, John chapter 12. Facing the crucifixion, right before the Last Supper, Jesus says these words. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Resilience is something that is really lacking. We are a comfort culture. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have hardship. And I'm not saying you should want it. I'm not saying you should ask for it. But this right here, our Savior Jesus my soul is troubled, but I know this is what I'm here for. God, I just need strength. I know I can't get out of this. There's no changing my circumstances right now. So what I need, Lord, not a way out. I need your strength. That's Jesus Christ modeling resilience, facing it, and knowing that he's the guy in the arena. As Teddy Roosevelt said, you're the one in the arena. You're the one striving. And there's nowhere to go. But to God. That's what he's modeling for us. And then, so we have a psalm from the Old Testament. We have a model of Jesus. But then what about Christians? What about people just like us? Everyday folks, right? Living life. What about us? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. And this is, man, there's strength in this. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. And this is one of those things that exposes lies that people believe. A lot of people will misquote the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 10, so the previous book in the Bible, and they'll say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's just not true. That idea is never anywhere in Scripture, ever, that God will never give you more than you can handle, because that's about your strength. 
That's all that is. It's about your strength. And God just being like, don't worry, I won't give you too much. Jeez, I'm not that mean. But what we have here from the Apostle Paul, the very one that's misquoted, he says, we were completely overwhelmed. We were beyond our strength. In other words, translation, God gave us more than we could handle. Way more than I could handle. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, had more on his plate than he could handle beyond his strength so that he even despaired of life itself. So this is the, like, what happens when you get pressed beyond your strength? There's a weird abyss out there where you feel like there's no answers, you don't know how to get ahead, you don't know what you're going to do for your family, for your friends, what the next step is, you have no strength left, and you feel like you have no hope left. What happens when you're not here anymore, where you feel like you've got it under control, and you're pushed out into that space right there? If that's where you're going to meet God, that's where the resilience from God has to come from. It doesn't come from us, clearly. This is a guy, if anybody could do it, the Apostle Paul should have been able to, but he goes on, the next verse. And he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, so that we would not trust in ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He knew he was beyond his own strength. He thought he was going to die. And why was he in this situation? Paul's looking back on one of these most miserable times in his life, and he's saying, I was there so that I wouldn't trust myself but I would learn how to trust in God who raises the dead because that's where the real power is. That's where real resiliency comes from. You're going to find the end of yourself eventually in this life. What Paul is trying to show us, what God is trying to say through Paul, is then oftentimes that's where we're going to meet God and that's an opportunity to find resilience, to be able to push through that. And Paul talks a lot about community, about church, about his people. I just I wonder how that lands with you. And then verse 10. He's delivered us from such a terrible death, and He will deliver us. We have put our hope in Him that He'll deliver us again. So the truth that I see in Scripture, but it's hard, it's hard to, I guess, digest, is that there is hope in Jesus. And I'm not just saying that it's some easy, easy, pithy answer, like, oh, yeah, there's hope in Jesus. Like, I'm saying, like, this is what we see in Jesus in His time here. It's what we see in the early church of them going to the most awful things, being murdered regularly for their faith, and then saying things like, the Apostle Paul just said. Right? And so, your soul, here's the, here's the connection I want to make, the analogy. I've had camels in the background for all this stuff. And we all know camels, right? We've all seen camels, right? There they are, they're cute. Um, so here's the thing about camels. They can carry like a 600-pound load, a fully grown camel, for hundreds and hundreds of miles over the most awful terrain this world has to offer. And given the right temperature, they can actually do it for up to six or seven months and go waterless for six or seven months, carrying around hundreds of pounds in desert terrain just like that. It's, it's crazy that they can do that. But here's where they're different, because their strength is also their weakness. And I want you to think about the human soul. I want you to think about the connection where we're headed. So, with the human soul, with camels, we have limits. Now, a camel is not like you. A camel can go seven months, maybe, without water. You can go maybe three and then you start being all weird, right? You start having all this kind of, your organs shutting down slowly, horses, donkeys, other mammals, same way. There's a slow fade. But if you read, and this is interesting, like actual, this is a real thing, and I read some historical accounts from people that were frustrated by camels for this very thing. A camel will go and go and go and go and go until it just dies. There's no warning. It's just, hey, I'm good, everything's cool, bam, I'm dead. Like, that's how it works with camels. And it's an interesting thing to, to read historical accounts of how frustrated people would be. Like, man, everything's cool, we're riding along, and then blah, just face plants, it's dead. No warning. 
So camels have an Achilles heel, much like our souls do. And this is what we see happening to people all over the place right now. We go, we go, we go, we keep pulling from reserves that should be there, we think are going to be there. All of a sudden they're not, and then what happens? Man, we just feel like we want to die. Some people literally feel like they want to die. There's nothing left. There's no reserves. So we're watching people slip into addiction. We're sli- watching them slip into hopelessness, into disillusionment. We're seeing people get really depressed and isolated, and it's like, it's just destroying people. If this is happening, again, this is not philosophy I'm talking about here. It's the world around us. It's in your home. Maybe even in you. It's in people that you love and care about. It's in your schools. It's in your teachers. This idea of just like being driven to just total desperation and just like, I can't do this anymore. And so what he talks about in this book, and a kind of a, a closing idea for this section of his book, he talks about this primal drive for life. And here's what I'd like you to think about. We all have this. We all have this sense that, man, this is just not right. Like that song, Rich Men for Men. Like that's what he's talking about. Something is not right. And we have this drive that, that he argues, John Eldridge in the book argues, that there's this primal drive for life that God's put in all of us to want better to want good, like this sense of, like, I need to somehow get back to Eden. Like, there's this perfection. There's this, there's this way the world should be, and it's not. And so we strive after things to find meaning and value and comfort and pleasure and peace, right? We want that sabbatical at the beach, but really we need that creator that created the beach, right? Vacations, they don't, they're not going to solve, right? They'll help, but they're not going to solve. And so this primal drive for life, he makes an argument that, we need to keep an eye on where we are because here's what's happened. And I, when I read this in the book, I was like, yeah, he's totally right. And he talked about how pre-pandemic, we were set up to be steamrolled by a pandemic. And he said, and then he went on to make a few arguments, which I'll share. But first, though, I noticed like five years ago, and I don't know if you guys ever noticed this or not, or if you ladies were talking to your friends and noticed this. I don't know how that worked for you, but for me, across the board, about five years ago, hey, how you doing? It went from, oh, you know, we're good, we're doing this, we're doing that, or, you know, times are, you know, it's hard right now, you know, this and that. It started to all of a sudden be, oh, we're busy. Busy. And I started hearing that more and more from people. How you doing? Oh, we're busy. You know. Oh, and, I was like, and then all of a sudden, what happened to me? I started getting busy. People were like, hey, Kyle, how you doing? Oh, busy, you know. And then they're like, the response like, oh, I hear you. I know, blah, blah. And they were like, out busying each other. And I'm like, what's happening right now? What are we doing to one another right now? But it was the world that we began to live in. And because people that worked in an office were expected, well, we've got email, we've got Slack, we've got Microsoft, we've got all these messaging apps. You are expected to work basically 24 hours a day. If you're in trades, no different. Hey, you work your job, you leave for like 3 in the morning, you get home, you're wiped out, but then you've got kids in sports and you got this and that. You've got side hustles because you can earn some serious corns and trades, corns and trades guy, and so you're going to be working all night, right? You're going to work weekends. Now all of a sudden you're working seven days a week, your family doesn't know who you are, your marriage is falling apart. And we were living this life, right? 24-hour news cycle, binging TV, binging social media. We were strung out completely, and all of a sudden the pandemic smashed into us. And we were not ready for it. And it wrecked us. And so then he says, you know, because of this, like, where did people go? So he lists, where did people go during the pandemic to find relief, to, to fulfill this drive for life? They went to sex or pornography. They went to drugs or booze or food and comfort eating. They went to work and overworking. They went to spending. They went to binging all kinds of stuff. Man, I remember how many people posted, like, oh, I just got done binge-watching this series. Anybody else got anything else I can watch? 
And it's like, why don't you go learn to play piano or something? Like, you know, and it's like, no, I, well, I need to watch the next thing. And that's what we were doing. And so I'm like, yeah, as I'm reading through his list, I'm like, yep, yep, check, check, check. Or scrolling Amazon Prime or scrolling Facebook Marketplace. And we're just spending, spending, spending. I think 72 million Americans remodeled their homes during the pandemic. We were searching for good, man. We were searching for it desperately. And here's what I did. So I looked back as I was reading this book and I was thinking about what did I do? Where was I looking for relief? And here's what your pastor did. I turned to Andy Griffith. <laughs> if you know Andy Griffith and Mayberry, in that world, no matter what the problem is, they can get it figured out in less than 25 minutes. So here I am, a pastor at this church, and my soul is being wrecked because I'm watching not just my church, but the church in general in America and beyond destroy itself because of politics. I'm wondering, how do Dean and I as pastors here keep this together and keep community healthy here when we've been weaponized against one another? How do we fight that? How do we battle that kind of thing? How do I, as a youth pastor, look myself in the mirror and feel like I'm being effective when some Sundays we had two kids in the kid zone and one of them was mine? You don't feel like a very effective pastor or man or husband or dad when your life feels like everything you do is just ineffective and it's like you have no answers. And just like the Apostle Paul, I was in that zone where I was way beyond my strength. And so what I started to do, man, I started to watch Andy Griffith and I didn't realize what was happening to me. But man, I was thinking about Andy and Bonnie at work. I was like, man, I can't wait to get home. I'm to check out that next episode. Because I had this drive in me for goodness. I had this drive in me that God placed there, and I didn't know what was happening to me for a couple months. And finally I realized, like, oh, this is, I'm, wow, I am a hot mess. I'm, wow. So I want you to think what your thing is. When you get to the end of yourself, what is it that you go to? Because here's the trauma cycle. We go through it. We don't want to go through it, but we get through it, maybe, and then now we try to forget about it, and then we get sensitized to the next moment of trauma. That's what happens. We know trauma response. We're pretty good with this now. So trauma sensitizes us to more trauma, and it brings to the surface the past trauma, because if we've not healed from it. Because you don't get used to it. Each new crisis simply piles on the stress, and this is 100% absolutely what we're seeing happening to us all across America. And so, again, it's happening in... Us. It's happening in our homes, in our schools, in our friends, at work, our bosses, people that work for us. Like, we all went through this shared trauma. We all went through this shared trauma. So, again, what are we going to do about it? So, here's the problem. What he writes in his book, and he says this in his book. In the post-pandemic world, most only sort of want God. Christians included. We only sort of want God. What we really want is for life to be good again. And if we can meet God along that way to life being good, hey, that's awesome. But if not, i got to get my life to be good again, then I'll find God. Like, that's, he says, what the problem is with a lot of believers. Now, the solution is going to see, and I'll, and I'll close with this quickly. The solution is that there is a river of life available to us. And here's the part, though. We're like, oh, yeah, Jesus, the river of life, all these biblical ideas. Man, what we're doing is not working. And here's what God has given us. In Ezekiel 47, verse 9, Ezekiel gets this vision of the temple, right? Old Testament, 600 years before Jesus, 500 years before, I guess, before Jesus. He gets this vision of the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees water just flowing out of it. And he doesn't know what's going on, and the angel says to him, Look, Ezekiel, there will be life everywhere the river goes. And it's just that little vision. I said, Okay. 
because of the river of life that flows from God. And in the very last chapter of the Bible, here's what the Apostle John says. He brings this back up, having his own vision. He says, and this river flows from Jerusalem, and it feeds the tree of life, whose leaves are, quote, for the healing of the nations. And so, if we're going to recognize first that, okay, we've been through trauma, the second thing is to say, okay, well, what has God said to help us in the trauma? Not to get out of the trauma, because Jesus said, look, it's just going to be trauma after trauma after trauma. Like, life is going to be difficult. So how do we find resilience in that space beyond ourselves? The picture that we're given is there's this river of life that we have access to as followers of Christ. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's something we should lean into. So what do we do? In this series, we're going to look at, one, the understanding of these promises that lead to resilience. And two, we're going to like really understand this deep, meaningful prayer journey that we could be on. We're actually going to say, okay, if these promises are real, they're meant to be lived out and they're meant to be owned by me. And I actually get to step into this resilience and this peace and this hope that's really actually offered. And so there's the concrete, just to give you concrete things. I think, and what he argues in the book, he said, first, we need to return our primal drive for life, this desire for better, and that longing for things to be good again, we need to give that back to God. And what does that look like? So again, if you're today, if you're here today, even if you're not a Christian, like what is it that Jesus offers? And if you are a Christian, what is it that you should be leaning into is the second one. That we need to understand, next slide, we need to understand we need to come back to Jesus from all the other places we've been chasing life. Like what does that look like for you? This is like a, a self-inventory time to say, man, what have I been chasing? Like, why, what, it, what is it that I go to when I want life to be good again? Because I'll promise you, maybe it's not going to fix it. I tried, and it didn't work out. And it was nice. It was nice, but I was checking out. I was, I was emotionally checking out. That's all I was doing. And then this third one, this is a little harder, and it leads into the prayer I want to close with today. Allow Jesus to be our rescuer, like, right here. In the longing and in the struggle, we ask him to fill us with a river of his life. And this can seem so esoteric or so existential, like this is not real life at all, but this is what's constantly talked about in the Bible. We want concrete, easy, quick things. That's what we want. We want to buy something and feel better. We want to eat something and feel better. We want to smoke something or drink something and feel better. We want that immediacy of feeling better. And what God continues to say is, no, I've got a river of life, man. There's peace here. There's resilience here. There's hope here. Like, when you lean deeply into it, that's what's cool about the song, man. Those guys are a mess. And they lean deeply into Jesus. They, well, at that point, Yahweh God. They didn't know Jesus yet. But here's a prayer I want to close with. Every chapter of his book, Eldridge's book, he closes with these prayers that are so not like me. I do not pray this way ever. The man I'm trying. I'm like, I'm trying to step into that, like, into the deep, so to speak, with Jesus. So I want to close today with this prayer. And I want to invite you, I don't know what works well for you. It's maybe close your eyes or read the words because I'm going to have them up there, whatever. But could you own this prayer a little bit? Like this, These are like psalmist kind of prayers. And so I want to read this. I want to close every Sunday of the next six weeks with one of John Eldridge's prayers from his book. So he says, Jesus, I come back to you now in my longing for life to be good again. I love you here, Lord, in my soul's longing desires, and heartache. I consecrate to you my primal drive for life, that sense that something's supposed to be better. I surrender to you 
my ability to aspire for good things, to plan for them, to take hold of them, to enjoy them, and then to keep on aspiring. I dedicate all living in me to you, Lord Jesus. I give you my famished craving for life to be good again. I love you here. I love you right here and now. And I ask that the river of your life would flow in me, in my desires and longing for life to be good again. I open my heart, I open my soul to the river of life. Let it flow in me. Let it flow through me and all around me, restoring, renewing, and healing. You alone are the life I seek. And I welcome your river into my heart and into my soul. I receive the river of life in me. Thank you, God. In your mighty name I pray. Amen. All right, that's it for this week. Have a good week. Lean into Jesus. We love to hear. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.